This message was recorded at North 2011, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Chapter 1, I'm going to read just a handful of verses here, and then we'll get into uh, the Word of God. Ezra, chapter 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you so much for the sheer joy of celebrating your saving mercy to us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It's your grace to us. Lord, we thank you so much for a fresh reminder of your incredible kindness and infinite mercy. And Father, we, we, we continue to look to you in Jesus' name. We pray, come Holy Spirit, right now. Rest upon us, Holy Spirit. Come and be our teacher. Come open the eyes of our hearts that we may know my Heavenly Father is speaking to me, the one who saved me, the one who cares for me is speaking into my life. We may hear your voice, please, Father. We may be shaped by your word, may be called by you into your purpose. Come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we pray. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here we are looking at a very key event in the history of Israel. We just need to remember really how God prepared Canaan for his people. I want you to see Canaan perhaps in a new way, a fresh way, that Canaan was like a new Eden. It was a new beautiful garden that God had prepared. And this time, instead of just Adam and Eve 
two people, this time a nation prepared by God, were going to enter it. It was a land of hills and valleys, of rivers, a land on which God said his eye continually rested, a land of fruit that was uh, so extraordinary that when the spies came back, it needed two guys to carry uh, the fruit out of Canaan, out of this place where his presence was, where a people were being given another opportunity to enter into the garden of God. Canaan, the land of promise, the place where God would manifest his glory. In fact, when Zion is captured and the temple is created and the box containing the glory and majesty of God, the covenant box of God is brought into the temple. The glory of God floods the place. This is the dwelling of God. This is where God's glory is. And Zion becomes the joy of the whole earth. God says, my eye is continually upon this land. It's like another Eden. It's like, let's start again. Let's have a fresh people. They will enter in through uh, Joshua, that Old Testament Jesus, who takes you into a new land. Says, Come on, we're going to go into a new land of promise. As they go in, they're told now you need to, uh, to assemble on two mountainsides. And as you do, you declare the blessings of God. And God said in the end of Deuteronomy, these are some of the blessings. And they're breathtaking, wonderful multiplication of fruitfulness, the favor, the mercy, success, just incredible blessings. This is what I will do for you in this new Eden, this new land I'm taking you into. And then on the other side, they had to stand and declare the curses. And they're terrifying, dreadful curses in Deuteronomy 28. This is the alternative. This is what will happen. These terrible things will take place. And you must stand declaring my blessings and declaring the dangers of my curses. And it's rather like Eden. You can eat of this, but you mustn't eat of that. Here's, here's, the, here's what lies before you. And now, now, we're not just looking at two people, we're looking at a nation going in. And of course, the greatest threat of all, if you don't listen to my voice, if you don't fellowship with me, if you enter into that place of worshipping other gods, not being loyal and faithful to your heavenly Father, then the ultimate will be you get thrown out of the land. Like Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, that was the ultimate judgment that could ever come upon this very special people that had met God at Sinai, where a mountain shook and the voice of God was heard. God said, I've brought you out. I've made covenant. I adopt you. You're my son out of Egypt. I've called my son. As he said to Adam, the son of God, here's my my fresh son. I brought you to birth. I've redeemed you. I've called you out of Egypt to be my son, to worship me. Now go into the land. But if you don't fulfill, if you reject and continually reject, I will throw you out of the land. That's the ultimate curse. To be out from where? Well, out from where the presence of God was known. That was the tragedy for Adam and Eve. It's being... Away from God, because in Eden, God came. He came and spoke with them, fellowship with them. When they turned from him, when they let Satan dominate their lives, they were thrown out, away from the presence of the Lord, away from enjoying him, experiencing God, fellowshipping with him, like a son and daughter to the king. Now they're out from there. Now Israel are told, now here you go. Here's another land flowing with milk and honey and rain and sunshine and blessing and fruitfulness. 
and a temple and glory. And I want you to be glory to the whole earth. I will extend and expand your borders. But if you fail, I'll throw you out. And prophet after prophet came. And they turned their backs, began to be adulterous. That's how God saw their sin. You're committing adultery. You're going after other gods. You're not showing loyalty. Some of the prophets, like Elijah, said, come back, come back. Don't, Don't throw away. Jeremiah, in the end, says, you've reached the end. If you don't change now, you are out of the land. And they didn't believe it. They said, oh, no, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Peace, peace. Jeremiah says, you say peace, there is no peace. It's all over. And they are thrown out of the land. They are thrown out, but it's amazing, actually, that uh, Kidner, tremendous commentator, says this. When Noah went into the ark, he went not just as a survivor, but as a bearer of God's promise for a new day. Not just to survive the storm, but with the promise of a new day. Similarly, when Israel was thrown out of the land, Jeremiah was the prophet who most of all said, this is going to happen, you're going. He was the one who paid a huge price. He was called a traitor. He was thrown into prison. They said, how could God throw us out of the land? You're a traitor. Other prophets said, no, all's well. Jeremiah spoke with tremendous dignity, authority, clarity. They were thrown out. But he also had wonderful promises. He had an amazing promise. He was called, go and, tol- go and buy land because there's going to come a new day. I will make a new covenant. I will do something fresh. I, I, I'll put my laws in their hearts. I'll put a new spirit within them. And so as they went away, yeah, just a tiny, tiny group survived it. Uh, but they went with promise that there's another day coming. Just as with Eden, that was over, but then God started with Abram and started again. So now, when they go into captivity, there is promise a new day will come. A day of new covenant. A day of breakthrough, which only we in this our age of the church really understand when our beautiful Savior took bread and broke it and said, this is the new covenant. And poured wine, said, this is a new covenant in my blood. He fulfilled that day. But there was a day that was promised, a day when this would come to an end, this season of being out from the presence of God, in exile, banished from God being in the presence of God. That's the historical background to the beginning of this chapter in Ezra. It's so important for us to see the Bible as one long, wonderful story. I know we can pick out verses here and there and they can bless us, but it's good to see the whole. And this is where we are in this story. God promised them they would come back. He promised them, actually, through Jeremiah, they'd come back after 70 years. That would be the next stage in preparing the scene for when one day when Jesus would come. And the ultimate will be fulfilled. They'll be back in that context. And so Ezra begins with these words that in order to fulfill the word of the word of Jeremiah, the Lord begins to act. So the next stage starts with the sense that God has spoken. God is the author of history. God is outworking his plan. And although Jeremiah was completely despised, although he was just thrown literally into the mud uh, and into a hole in the ground and uh, put in prison and, and really rejected, when God called Jeremiah, he said this to him, 
I have chosen you before you were formed in the womb. I chose you. And he showed him a vision and he said, I am watching over my word to perform it. God is committed. When God speaks, he's utterly committed. When you've got God's word, you've got God's future. God doesn't waste words. He doesn't say words just to encourage you, but they don't really mean it. Oh, well done. No, no. God, when God speaks, it is full of dignity, authority, unchanging purpose. And it may be that Jeremiah is despised, rejected, but God had spoken through him. He said this is going to happen. And so, yeah, in order to fulfill that word, God began to put everything into place. And a new day begins in God's history. And this guy, Ezra, and the people we read about in this particular book begin to awaken to it. So this is a day that starts in the promises of God. God has made awesome statements about world history. Said them in advance. That's why we can be courageous. That's why we can be strong, even though though we can see seasons when the church doesn't look very impressive, we know that God is the God of history. And what he said, he will do. This next uh, uh, book then starts with him having promised through Jeremiah. Then secondly, it's, a, it's, it's rooted in a God who actually acts. And so we find that Cyrus, in 538 BC, changes foreign policy. He comes in, takes over and has a foreign policy which actually didn't only affect Israel. You can read about this. This is uh, in secular history. You can read about it in what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a secular history that this uh, emperor, Cyrus, had this foreign policy that people who, uh, with Babylon, had been pulled into Babylon, Cyrus has changed that and said, captive people will be released and sent back to the lands from which they came. Actually, his uh, policy went beyond Israel, But God's purpose was in Israel. It's great to know that God is over the big issues of life. God is over the Arab Spring. God is over the collapse of communism. God is over all all these massive things. He's over them. He wanted an earth, so he made billions of stars and galaxies. But he's, he's over the whole thing, working out his plan. And here God is working out his plan, and this Cyrus begins to declare his foreign policy. Well, he could say, well, there it is in the history books. He did it for several. But actually, if you look at Isaiah, who, became, who was prophesying even before Jeremiah, he said, Cyrus, I have named him. He is my servant. Even before he lived. He's my servant. He's actually called my anointed, my Christ. He's the servant of God. He is a political Leader is actually God's servant, fulfilling God's will, arranging for these captive Jews to go back to the land. That's the actual thing that's happening. All sorts of political movements, but God is doing this. We need to be more and more sensitive when we look at the big political movements. We think, what is God doing behind all this? Where's God at work? Here, God is at work, sending them back. And he can sometimes move uh, huge scenes in order to accomplish his purpose. It's rather like when Jesus is going to be born, and the Bible says he will be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and yet Mary, who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, is there in Nazareth. You think, oh, whoops, supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, What should we do? Well, we find that Caesar decrees that the whole world should be taxed. 
in order to get Mary back down to Bethlehem. Because you have to go to your hometown or village to be registered in the census. And so, yeah, God moves in a huge, huge tapestry in order to fulfill his purpose, to have Mary in Bethlehem, that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. This massive God is over history, over his purpose, and Mary will be there just as here. God is over history, raises up this man, Cyrus, who just thinks he's got a foreign policy, but the Bible says, no, no, God has arranged this. They will begin to go to the place of his appointment. They're going to go back to the land. So, yeah, they're going to go to restore Jerusalem and to rebuild the house of God. Now, this is going to call for a real response in the hearts of those who are hearing about it. And I love the phrase that says, the Spirit of the Lord stirred Cyrus, and then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir up the people. And the language that's used is a bit like the Exodus. They're going to get up and leave the nation they're in in order to get into the purposes of God. And if you read the prophecies, you'll find Exodus kind of language that says this is what it is. It's a, it's a getting up and going into God's great plan. But actually, it's different from the Exodus. In this, that the Exodus took place with two million slaves. Been in slavery for some generations. They were beaten and whipped and oppressed in terrible straits. And they are crying out, oh God, deliver us. Please deliver us. And Moses is told by God, I have heard their cry. I've seen their oppression. I've come down to deliver them. And Moses is God's agent in that, as you know, and calls them out. Let's go. Let's go into the purposes of God. So the Exodus really was an escape. But this time, it's not quite like that. Because here, these people have in the past been told to settle there. And so the Jews have been living in Babylon, in exile, for a season. Some of them have been born there. And actually, it was nothing like being in Egypt. No one's beating them up. They're not slaves. In fact, they started their own businesses. Uh, they're probably doing quite well, actually. And they kept their distinctive by starting synagogues. They're no longer in Jerusalem. There's no longer the glory, the Shekinah, the temple. Uh, but they do have the sacred writings. And so they're away, uh, and they started synagogues. That's when synagogues got started, when they were away from uh, the land where the glory was in the temple. They had, well, we've got the sacred writings. We can read Isaiah. We can read Moses and the law. We can read uh, the wisdom literature. We can, here's, here's our scrolls. And they would gather in their little synagogues, and they have business, and they have children, and they have family. And they're told by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, bless the city where you are. And, well, this is life now. We've got used to this. And so, actually, it's going to take a real stirring to get them to go. It's not like, oh, please get us out of here. That's what it was like at the Exodus. Can we get out, please? Moses goes with them here. No, no, it's a new kind of a thing. It's going to be a stirring that will take them out. It will need a, an inspiration from God in order to move them on. This is a new day that is inspired by a vision really, let's go up and rebuild the house of God. Let's go and rebuild 
the temple where his glory is manifested, where we can be back in the land. Not because the land is anything, except that's where his presence has been. That's where the temple, that's where we knew God was. That was where Eden, that's where God was. That's where we were so special. Like Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not interested. It's being in the presence. And so in, in, the, in the Babylon, they were used to being without the presence. They were still the people of God. They could say, why bother to go? We're Hebrews here, aren't we? If we stay, we're still Hebrews. If we go, we're Hebrews. So who needs it? I'm a Hebrew here. I've got the promises. I've got the sacred scriptures. I've got my brothers. You know, we're trying to keep the laws. We're circumcising our children. We're keeping the Sabbath. You know, what's the point? But some said, no, no, no. We must have the presence. We must get back to where God's with us which makes it completely different just to reading the sacred documents. We can, we can be back where the glory is. We can be with God again. We can go back into Eden, back into the land where God shines on us. His presence is known with us. And certainly that's the kind of prophecy that comes from people like Haggai and Zechariah who accompany these guys who go. They say, rebuild the house. The glory of this latter house will surpass the glory of the former. And then it goes on and expands. And Haggai starts seeing into the future. He says, I'll shake all the nations. And all the nations will come in. And the glory will fill. These prophets are seeing into the future. These guys are beginning to feel, is it possible that we could have glory again? Is it possible we can have God's presence with us again? Do we just, can we have more than the sacred writings? Can we be where God is with us? And that stirring starts captivating some and moving upon them. Someone said this, what is a vision? Here's a helpful little phrase. A vision is a compelling picture of a preferable future that inspires us to perform. Right? It's a compelling picture of a preferable future that inspires us to perform. And this is what begins to captivate people, that we could again be back in the presence of the Lord. We could again experience the wonder of God being with us, the thrill, the excitement we can be in his presence. To me, these chapters have fascinated and stirred me for some time. They've come to me afresh of late. I feel God saying to us, this is what motivates us. This is what stirs us. This is what we want. We want a spirit-filled church. We want a church where God is manifestly present. A church that is more than simply, let's just see what it says in this verse and that verse, not to despise any of those things, but the sheer wonder of being in the presence of God. The sheer wonder of feeling his touch, knowing his nearness, knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit, people being touched and healed and meeting with him, having hurts broken, the sort of things we've been singing about. Our chains fell off, our condemnation's gone. We feel God with us. That motivation, that is a preferable future. It's better. God wants the recovery of churches filled with his presence. So these books like Ezra and Nehemiah, are full of teaching that motivates that kind of a thing. It's, Lord, I want a temple where your glory dwells. And really, to be honest, that's been always at the root of the people of God. When God first came to Abraham, Abram as he was, uh, he was just a pagan. The Bible nowhere says that he was seeking God. 
it says he was an idolater. His family were idolaters. They're pagan idolaters. And then it says this, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. And he said, come out from the Ur of the Chaldees to a place that I will show you. And he just, he saw glory, heard promises. God said to him, can you count the stars? So many will your children be. Through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. My history, my world program is now wrapped up in you. I am investing promises in you, purpose in your life with global ramifications. And he just appeared to him in glory. And Abraham, it says, he left Ur of the Chaldees and went out not knowing where he was going. He said he saw a city. He saw down the corridors of time. He saw a city. Right in the New Testament Hebrews it says, you have come to Zion. That city that Abraham saw, is, there's a place where the glory of God will dwell. The glory and the majesty of God will be among his people. And Abraham was the father of all who believe. And we're told in Isaiah, look to the one from whom you are hewed. Look to him. When he was one, I called him. It's so wonderful to see God's breathing life into a people. We can see that sort of thing, dear friends. I stand on this platform and was with Guy and their guys last weekend. You look out at something that's kind of like this Downs Bible Week, which was when that was just one little thing. That's all it was. That's how we got started. Now you go here, you go there. Next month or month after, I'm in Guadalajara with another thousand at the fiesta there, and another one, another. God is starting again and again, and and with guys dreaming huge dreams. The sort of thing that Jeremy presented to us last night. He's not saying, well, this is a nice meeting. Let's have a nice conference. He's saying, hey, we are looking. We're going. Who's coming with us? We get John up here saying, I'm off to Oslo. Others saying, we're going to Vancouver. We're going here. We're going there. Why? Because there's some momentum here. That what started tiny and minute is going and going and going. And for some of us who were out together on a mission in Brighton, we could see it there. We just see a number of guys. There's a handful of guys. Here we go. Then you come here and say, here's the next phase. There's two and a half thousand here. And city after city and maps and people and faces and bodies. And they're going. They're going. And it all started with Abram. When he saw the glory of God and he started, I'm going looking for a city. And God said, through you I'll bless all the families of the earth. So this has always been in the root of being the people of God, that sense of, yeah, I must leave, I must go, I'm called. Like Moses, remember Moses, we're told that Moses, uh, through some extraordinary uh, developments, looks like Pharaoh's grandson, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, looks like the future's rosy, looks like royalty, looks like he's got everything before him, and God comes to him. And by faith, Moses refused. I love that. So often the faith ministry is how you can get. By faith you can have. How much, how much faith you can have, you can have. By faith, Moses refused. Everything on offer. That's the big... By faith, he said, no, I don't want it. What don't you want? All the treasures of Egypt... All the prestige, all the power, all the freedom that a rich young ruler, every choice, every, I have, I don't want it. I count greater riches the Christ and the people of God. What, what, these slaves? They look rubbish. They're just trodden on slaves. No, no, I can see them different. Can you see it different? 
Think, oh, the church of God. You see newspaper articles just rubbishing the church. If you're a man or woman of faith, you say, no, no, no. That may look like a starling in your garden. You want to see what's coming. You see something. You say, no, no, I've seen, I've seen something. I, I've, I'm, ca- I'm captivated by something. And Moses made this huge decision. No, I don't want all that, thank you. I'd rather be identified with this slave crowd and the Messiah, the, the promised one, the one who's going to save the world. World history is in our ranks. We, we feel we're carrying world history. And Moses, as he looks back to Abram, and God spoke to Abraham and said, you're, you're going to bless the whole world, and, uh, but you're going to go through a season. God said it in advance. There will be a season when you'll be in pressure and, and you'll be dominated. You'll be, you'll be slaves. God said it right at the beginning to Abraham. So that happened like with Jeremiah. God, God tells us these things will happen. But Moses has faith. No, no, I would rather be identified with the guys in tents in mud. You're crazy, you people. You're crazy. What did you do for bank holiday? Oh, we camped in the mud. You did what? You're going back to work next week, many of you. What did you do back holding? And it leaked, and it was mud, and it was... What on earth did you do that for? Well, I've seen something. It's like they say, what are you seeing? I can't see it. You are a people that people can't understand because you've seen something they can't see. And we are more impressed by the unseen than we are by the seen. That is the root of what it is to be the people of God. That's Abraham didn't waver through unbelief. He looked at his own deadness. He looked at the leaking tent. He looked at the mud. He thought, hey, come on. No, no. He said he didn't waver. He looked at God. He said he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he's able to perform. And, and, and Moses comes in, in, in that line. He says, no, no, I, I don't want all this wealth. It's short term. It's fleeting. It's not here for long. It's not going to be around. I know many of you know P.J. Smythe, wonderful young man from Johannesburg, battled with cancer last year. I mean, terrible, terrible, life-threatening daily. His wife, Ashley, living through this. He living through it day by day, month by month. Now restored, praise God, back in his pulpit. I understand the very first Sunday, uh, he stood in his pulpit. I think he sat, actually, because he had this thrombosis in his leg. And, uh, but he's there, back in the pulpit again, or on the platform, and uh, apparently lit a cigarette. Kind of, that, that kind of, yeah, I don't often see that just before the guy preaches. And uh, I'm told, I've not seen it yet, but I've been told you must see it. And he took a puff of this cigarette, and everyone's looking at him. And he blew, and the smoke went up and went. And then he said, your life is a vapor. And he knew what he was talking about. He didn't know if he was going to live the day or that year or any more. And values, but right, I mean, you have an encounter with real values. It would do a phenomenal, and I think Moses saw that. He said, okay, so I could be a prince, so I could have riches, but what's it all about? What's the point? We would never have heard of him if he'd made the wrong choice. You've never heard of all the other pharaohs. But Moses, wow. He made a phenomenal choice. He, and he led to an exodus. I'm going, out, I'm going out from Egypt. 
I'm going out from it. I'm, I'm setting my guard. Like, like Abram. He went out from Ur of the Chaldees, which was a very prosperous city. And he was obviously a rich guy. He went out from it. Moses went out from These people are being called to come out from. Why? Because by the presence of the Lord. You see what that meant to David. David, David, we're told dance. We've been singing about dancing. For David, the bringing in of the ark of God into Jerusalem. Saul didn't even care about it. For David, ah, I mean Saul, you don't even know what you're about. David says, here comes the presence of the Lord into Jerusalem. Here comes the presence. Here comes the presence. Here comes God into the temple of God or into the tabernacle at that time. God's coming to be here. This will make Zion the joy of the whole earth. He danced and he sang. He said, one day in your presence is better than a whole life somewhere else. Beloved, that is a true equation. That's not just poetry. When we've had days in the, in the presence of God, when you've known, when you've been in prayer days or days with, with other brothers and sisters just in the presence of God, or even alone, you're, you're just before Him, you think, oh my word, people spend their whole lives, they've never tasted this. They've never known what it's to say, no condemnation now, I dread. They don't know what we're talking about. They live with guilt and conscience and misery, and, they don't, and we can say, Father, we can say, all my sins have gone. I feel your nearness now, even as we did in the worship earlier. The sense of God's presence is just wonderful. And David said, just one day of this. One day of this. It's better than a whole life spent somewhere else. To bring in the presence of the Lord. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord. To inquire in his temple. We learn these things from David. He's saying, to be in his presence is everything. Gordon Fee, in his magnificent book, Paul, the Spirit and the People of God. If you haven't read that yet, you're wasting some of your life. That's a wonderful, wonderful book. All right? So he says in there, whatever else, the people of Israel understood themselves to be the people of the presence the people among whom the eternal God had chosen to dwell. Whatever else. And he says this, even, more even than the law or other identity markers such as circumcision, food laws, Sabbath observance, God's presence with Israel distinguished them as his people. It was God's presence. That was their huge, huge privilege. It says when they were in Babylon where they've been captive now for some 70 years, it says in Psalm 137, by the river of Babylon we sat down and wept because they taunted us. They said, sing us some of the songs of Zion. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because we're away from the presence. We're in exile. We've been banished. How can we sing? How can we sing these great songs that... They just lost their meaning. We're away from the presence. We can sing songs, but... And they taunted them. I'll sing some of your songs. How can I sing them when God's not here? And then you get that wonderful Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones from Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongues were singing. I believe I've lived through things like that. I thank God for 
being saved and going to a formal church. I thank God for the excellent Bible teaching I had. I really honor and respect great teaching and preaching. But it was a very cold experience. Very formal. No one speaking to one another. No sense of glory. We never even thought of glory. Just a great preach. That was it, really. But when God began to come amongst us, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I thought, oh, my word, God, you're right here now. You're in my mouth. You're in my body. I feel you. Oh, God, this is breathtaking. This is wonderful. You've, you've come. And others are my friends. And we started to meet. And we started worshiping. And they're in the, worshiping in the Spirit together. Never seen anything like it before. Never known. I've never known anything like God is this close. God's starting to speak to us in prophecies. Wow, God is here. And then God broke open to us the grace of God. I remember being in the early church where where I was preaching this grace and began to see it. And preached on Zechariah 3 when it says Joshua the high priest is standing there. and, And Satan is saying, you filthy guy, look at your filthy clothes. And then God says, remove them, put on festal garments. And God justified him. Romans 8, it is God who justified. And I suddenly saw it. He stood upright in the presence of God. I remember preaching it. I remember that night as I preached it. And we danced and danced for like two hours. And the people suddenly saw, we're living in grace. We're thoroughly acceptable. We're home with Jesus. Jesus is here by the Spirit. There's no condemnation. We're not trying to fulfill the law. We're trying, it's all over. We're not trying to earn points. We are back out of exile. We are back as children of the Lord. His spirit is in us. He's justified us freely as a gift. Beloved, we're looking for spirit-filled churches that enjoy grace. It's a different kind of a church life. Not in order that we can just be distinctive and different, but to be truly biblical. Back into the presence. Out of exile. Out from just having the scrolls. However cleverly they're interpreted to us. Back where the glory dwells. Back into where he is manifestly present. And that's what Gordon Fee says. That's what, that's what marked the people of the Old Testament. And then they said that's what was in the New Testament. They were awash with the presence of the Spirit. God had come. God coming to his house. So what does this mean for us today? Well, now we are. Israel was the people of his presence. Now we are. Hebrews 3, now we are his house. Ephesians 2, you are a holy temple in the Lord, built together into a dwelling for God in the Spirit. God's presence with us. Again, 1 Peter 2, 5, you're a spiritual house of living stones. God dwelling among us, rebuilding the house where his glory dwells, where increasingly the manifestation of his presence will be. And so churches get started. I was just reading in 1 Corinthians this morning in my devotional reading. And Paul writes to this pagan city. He says, to the church at Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus. He says, you come behind in no spiritual gift as the gospel was confirmed among you. (laughs) Oh, yes. These pagans had heard the gospel. They're now sanctified in Christ. In other words, they are now declared holy because they belong to him. And the spirit has been poured out among them to demonstrate and prove and underline the fact that, yes, they're saved. Ministry, the gifts of the Spirit are all present. God has come to Corinth. God's come to this town, that town. People coming right into this wonderful house that God is building. Now we are his house. So I believe we read these passages knowing that we also are called to a fresh exodus. 
We're called to a fresh exodus. We're called out. See, really, that's the difference between the story of Ezra and Nehemiah to anything before. In the Old Testament, you get times when Israel's backsliding. So you get Elijah saying, come back. You know the true God. And they repent and come back. Samuel says, come on, you've backslidden. Come back. And they say, oh, we're sorry. We come back. All through the Old Testament, you get these prophets calling them back, calling them back. But on this occasion, they're not just coming back. They have been thrown out of the land. They're right out. They're in a foreign land. Beloved, the church in our generation has been like in a foreign land. This is Babylon. We no longer live with Christendom behind us. We can no longer say to the boys and girls on the streets, no, come on, don't behave like that. You know, you know, you know better than this. Now, even when Billy Graham came in the 50s and 60s, effectively he was saying, come back to God. That was really his message, come back to God. And thousands did. They said, oh, of course we know, we've not really followed what we know. If you went out today and said, come back to God, they'd say, which God? We don't believe there is a God. We're, 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 there's no Christendom anymore. We're not a backslidden, we're out. We're in another culture. This is a non-Christian culture. We live in a foreign land where the laws tell us that's wrong. We say, but no, it's right, that's biblical. No, you can't do that anymore. That's illegal. Illegal? Yeah, it's illegal now. You can't do that. We're Christian. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) No, you can't take that for granted anymore. It's a different world. We're in Babylon. And so the call to us as we finish this message this morning is to exodus, to come out. And you see, when you get used to living in Babylon, you just get used to the culture. Your expectation levels drift. You don't really expect much. You don't get too excited. So you just become part of the culture. God wants us to come out. Otherwise, if we're not careful, Babylon begins to shape you. And you get your kicks from it. You know, you're just in Babylon. So it matters to you about the, the X factor. Who do you think will win? You know, that mattered. And or who do you think get chucked out of Big Brother? Or who do you think is going to win uh, The Apprentice? I'm watching him. I think him. Well, I think, who? What? What do you want about? Well, the culture, this, this is what we do, isn't it? Don't we get excited about who might win The X Factor? Uh, not really. But that's life, isn't it? Well, what about what's happening in Coronation Street next week? Or EastEnders? Or are you following the plot? And, uh, uh, what? No, that's just, it's just Babylon. It's just we don't have any anticipation of glory. Well, we go to church on Sunday, but Babylon just kind of shapes. You do it. You go with it. You've just become part of it. It's telling you what matters. It affects your worldview. It can even begin to undermine some of your Christian awareness without you realizing it, because Babylon is shaping us. Unless we exodus, unless we say, I'm out of here. I need to come out. I need to escape from, well, my values. I go to a good church. I'm pleased to go to a good church. But, you know, we do all this other stuff as well. Well, we're just part of the culture. It's just shaping us. It's shaping our kids. It's shaping our family life. It's shaping the way we eat our meals. Well, we don't eat together because we're watching this. and uh, We just we didn't realize that the culture is shaping us. We think, well, our kids, well, of course, they'll all backslide for a while. Won't they? We just expect This is what happens in Babylon. There's got to come a call in our hearts, dear friends. It's what this kind of 
weekend's all about. So God has put before you a preferable vision. God has put before us a compelling picture of a preferable future. It can be different. It can be different. And God is saying to us, in this powerful word Ginny's just brought about the starlings. You think, well, I wonder where this is going. You think, starlings? I, I can sit and look at my garden from my window. We see pigeons. We see pretty birds. We see robins. You know, starlings. Yes, right. Where do they go? Then you think, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When they move in the sky like that. And, and but not a, the possibility that God could turn this nation. The possibility that things could change. The possibility that the presence of glory of God can break out. The possibility we could see a revolutionary turnaround. Has it often happened in the past when the nation was at its lowest? When Wesley and Whitfield burst on the scene? It was terrible in this nation. Moral decline was at a... When William Booth came on the scene, children were drunk on gin in the streets. It was just dreadful. God suddenly came. The second great awakening. God came in power. God changed and transformed things. Beloved, we're to live with this expectation. But it's going to call for an exodus. It's going to call for what I'm getting out from being shaped just by the immediate, by the values of my neighbors who don't even know there's a God. By things that seem to matter to them. We just line up with them. We let them shape our thinking, our expectation, our hopes. This morning, I believe God's speaking to some hearts and saying, will you leave it? In your heart. There's an exodus in your heart that says, well, I want to get into something that's more purposeful, more meaningful. But God's put something phenomenal on our horizons. So I've got to, I've got to get out from to leave it. I, and sometimes that takes a big thing. I know when I was saved, I asked Jesus into my heart. Just an unclean Teenager, did no Christian background, never wasn't my parents were not Christian. No, so I just asked Jesus, and I'm just going to church now. But I was still captivated by the culture. My life was still like a modern teenage Brighton kid, just doing everything they did. I hadn't. God did a job on me. He kind of smashed me to pieces. It, it spoke to me one Sunday, just in in church, one Sunday. And the first time in my life, scared the life out of me. I really felt God said to me, are you for me or not? Because I meant it when I got saved. I remember, I remember, I went, I went forward. I got saved in my home. I went forward. John Stott, I heard John Stott preach at All Souls. And I ever, first time I ever heard preaching in my life, John Stott preached the gospel. I thought, oh, my word. I walked forward. I thought, I, I had nowhere in the world I'd rather be. I really meant it. But nothing changed much. Started going to church on Sunday mornings. Added it to my menu. But nothing really changed. And then there was this, are you, in, are you with me or not? I'd almost had this feel like, it's now or never, son. Are you with me or not? I was really scared and cool at the same time. I felt like God said, I want you. Have I got you? And those were not in the days when you were invited to come forward at meetings or anything. Just a very formal church. And I just shook the man's hand, went back to my house and cried. I said, God, please, you've got to do it. I don't know how to get out. 
I've tried sometimes. I got baptized. I can't get out. The culture's so in me. How do you get out of it? All my friends are there. I don't know how to break out, Lord. And I felt God said, you just obey me. And I came out, and I, and, I, and I let go of stuff. I lost friends, and lost a girlfriend, and lost companions, and, and, and for a while, desperately lonely. Because I had to get out. But within a year, baptized in the Spirit. Oh, my word, a new world. A new world. The following year, I left work. I started serving God. An adventure started rolling. But I've been a Christian for some six years. I've, I've, not, I've not gone anywhere. Because I still lived in Babylon. You living in Babylon? That's where I got my kicks. I went to church. I really knew I was saved. I really knew I was saved. If someone said, are you Christian? I said, yeah. But I hadn't, it hadn't exploded anything in my heart. That day, and I couldn't see what it was. I couldn't see where I would go. But it's like, I want you. Come on out. Is God saying that to you this morning? I want you. I certainly didn't look like a promising case. God started something. You've got to come out. I had to come out. Come out of Babylon. For some of us, it means even coming out of religion that's not doing you any good. I remember when I spoke at Spring Harvest and... uh, I could never understand this. We had a, you know, I thought we had a good time. And people came up to me at the end and said, wow, this is the highlight of my year being here. And uh, they said, well, next week we're going back to church. And I said, well, what do you mean? And uh, for me it was the other way around, but never mind. It was, uh, they said, and I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, we're praying for the vicar to get saved. Honestly, literally, literally. They said, I thought, I beg your pardon. We're praying for the vicar to get saved. I thought, what are you doing? Are we, because it has saint in front of it, doesn't mean it's a church. I thought, what are you doing there? For some of us, we've got to exodus out. We've got to say, hey, come on, let's get out. That's what Paul, see, when Paul went to Ephesus in Acts 19, he went to the synagogue to start with. He went to the synagogue. He went to a small group who loved the scriptures, who knew the scriptures, and he stayed there for a while. But when they refused what he was on offer with, he stepped out. To do what? To start a little church? No, to change the whole culture of a city. See, when he moved out from the synagogue, you read Acts 19. It's the high spot of the book of Acts. By the time he got out, he's got a riot. You've got people saying, we can't sell any more idols about Diana of the Ephesians. It's affecting our business. We've got to get out. And he went out to affect a whole region. Some of us need to get out from dead religion. Some of us need to go out to do it again. Like John says, I'm off to Oslo. Others are saying, we've got to get off to go to various places. Because God's looking for us to be in Exodus, getting into his great purpose. God's looking for a glorious church, not a wreck. God's looking for a mature body, not a sick body. He's looking for a devoted bride, not a whore. He's looking for a powerful army. He wants to fill us with glory. God's calling us. Will you come on, Exodus, come out from? Let's build a house where his presence can be enjoyed. And now let's stand.
to pray. Let's come before him, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much that you are building a house where we can encounter glory, where we can meet you, where we can be thrilled and excited with you. I was sent an email week before last by a guy, a South African friend actually, and then he quoted John Flavel. John Flavel was a Puritan. And he said this, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul. We're not to live without spiritual exhilaration. The image we have of Puritans could be pretty different to that. He's saying ecstasy and delight are essential, essential. Meeting God, enjoying him, experiencing him. If I'd not found delight, I'd have gone back. Because I found some fun back there. It was quite fun getting drunk. It was quite fun experiencing parties and all the stuff that went with it. If you haven't found something that's captivated you, Babylon will have a huge tug on you. You need to find a place where our church enjoys ecstasy and delight. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. What has happened to these people? looks like they've hit something phenomenal. Otherwise, we're just doing our duty. We're just keeping the wheels of responsibility going. Church should be a place of ecstasy and delight where we meet with God. Father, we ask you that you will win our hearts. Draw us into your purposes. Cause us to know your call. Lord, we do pray you'd rescue us from going through the motions. Call us into an adventure of your purpose. Maybe God's spoken to your heart this morning. Maybe you're realizing, hey, I, I, I've, got, I've got a bit trapped in Babylon. I don't know much about delight in God. If you know that God's spoken to you, let's just be mean business with God now. And I don't want to delay this or prolong this. I realize time's a challenge here. But if you know God's spoken to you and you really feel, I, I just want to, I want to respond to this. I want to step out. I want to have my exodus. I want to line up. God's got an adventure for my life. I'm missing it. I'm in danger of missing what God has for me. I want to invite you right now. Would you just step out of your row and come and stand here? Let's pray over you. Let's believe, God, that you're beginning a new adventure with God. Would you come, please? Musicians, would you come? If God's spoken to you, just step out here. We're just going to pray over you and believe, God, for you, that you have your own personal exodus. God's going to have an exodus for every nation. Every nation will know a people who step out from its culture and a new people get formed. Under Passover blood, they'll know the wonder we're just going to sing as you're coming. If God spoke to you, come. If you're a ministry team, would you please come? If there are pastors or small group leaders, wives, please, if you just come and line up if you can. Just come quickly, please, so I can just get through and be with a guy, a girl. Just come. Let's just spread along the front here, move into that spaces at the side. Let's come as we're singing. We're not going to prolong, but I do want to give us a chance. Let's say, right, I, want, I mean business so we can really press on with all that we're going to hear. 
from now on. Let's just come, please.